Well, I think we've got a quorum, so we can begin. <laughs> Why don't I open up with a word of prayer, and I'm just going to hand it right over to Mike this morning, so uh, we don't rob him of any time. Uh, Father, we do thank you that you've seen us safely again through a night and into the morning. And uh, Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place where we can encourage each other in our faith and be encouraged uh, by Dr. Honeycutt and uh, the stories that he can bring us um, of people who have uh, heeded a call uh, to take the gospel to the world and to live it out in practical ways. Father, we pray that it would be not only encouraging but challenging to us as well as we take up that mantle of, of living out the gospel here in this town. Uh, thank you again uh, for the opportunity, and we pray that your spirit would be working. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, I have to say, I slept last night probably as well as I slept in years. I, I, I really went to bed, and the next thing I knew, the alarm was going off, and that hadn't happened. You know, in my age, that just doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> all the time at night. So, thank you. You've taken well care of me for the night, and I'm rested and ready to go. Um, this morning, we're going to look at uh, first at William Wilberforce, and then at uh, Ward Shaftesbury, two very different people, but um, had to some degree similar callings. And I want to begin, though, with uh, just thinking about making a difference. Um, I would imagine some of you have thought about uh, this, maybe even have done this exercise where you actually write out your own obituary. Now, it sounds a bit morbid, but it's not at all. The idea is that you really are trying to decide what would you like uh, your family, your friends, your colleagues, um, your community to remember about you when your life is over. And the idea being that it kind of helps set your priorities. And, uh, you know, I think that it's deeply ingrained within all of us because we're made in the image of God. I think that it's a part of us to want to make a difference. Um, the question is, how do we do that? And, uh, and a bigger question for us, I think, today is, is this question. Um, once a society or a culture or a nation has begun to drift and um, leave its, its moorings to a large degree, can that culture, that society, that nature be turned around? That's, I think it's a big question, and it's a fair question to ask. Um, as you look at church history, one of the things that you see is that there have been times when a whole culture has really turned around. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at today is that very thing. Uh, through Largely through the efforts of William Wilberforce <laughs> and a group of people around him called the Clapham Sect, uh, they really did uh, turn around a culture that was um, a very difficult uh, culture at the time, it made huge differences in the life of Britain, and through them, uh, really even uh, broadly, more broadly than that. To get at, uh, well, one person put it this way, a Russian poet said this, it is not revolutions and upheavals that clear the road to new and better days, but someone's soul inspired and ablaze. And what you're going to see with Wilberforce and the others around him is that they had a, um, a, a deep faith in God. It was a very vibrant faith. Now, uh, Wilberforce is going to come to that. He doesn't start with that. He's going to come to that, and that will animate his entire life, and it'll give him a deep sense of conviction, a deep sense of compassion uh, for the oppressed, uh, following after the example of Christ. Um, before we really look at his life, though, let me just give you a, a brief glimpse of kind of the social crisis that you find in 19th century Britain. This is his context. This is the life that, or, or the, the world in which he is born into. Uh, any Charles Dickens fans here? I would imagine at least some of you are. Uh, I've come to really love his novels um, because they depict so very well the difficulties that you find in the industrialized world and, and during the Industrial Revolution, in Britain especially, uh, when everything is changing. Now, in the 19th century, uh, in many ways, the world belonged to Britain. I mean, this was an extraordinary time for, for Great Britain. It was the cradle of the Industrial Revolution. London became the largest city in the world. It was the financial, uh, financial center in the world. By 1914, Britannia ruled the largest empire in extent and population uh, ever on the, the face of this earth to that day. Huge empire, center of the world in many, many ways. But the rapid industrialization brought about by the Industrial Revolution really brought about um, despicable uh, life conditions for so many people. And that is so well depicted by Charles Dickens uh, in his many, many novels um, because 
uh, he grew up in the midst of that. And he actually lived that, as I'll, I'll just introduce to you, because it's helpful to know how he was able to depict so well the plight of the poor. Dickens, in his many novels, um, uh, David Copperfield was somewhat uh, autobiographical. Nicholas Nickleby would be another one, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, uh, Christmas Carol, uh, most all, all of us would know. But he became a great spokesman for the poor, partly because um, those descriptions came out of his own life experience. He, he had a father who was a very nice man, uh, worked um, in a kind of middle-class uh, job, but he was a very generous man and often found himself in financial difficulty. And at one point, his father actually lands in debtor's prison uh, because of that, and the whole family goes to debtor's prison uh, with him, except for Charles Dickens, who was 12 years old at the time and is immediately sent to work at a um, shoe factory where he will stick labels on boxes of shoes. And he'll do that for a very long time. He'll work very long days, work six days a week, 12-hour days, I think, um, maybe even longer than that. And then on Sundays, go to visit his family in prison. He's having to help support them. Uh, so he grew up facing, experiencing what um, was a big part of the Industrial Revolution uh, early on, and that was really tough situations for children. You'll have a number of uh, children uh, and uh, employed for... Um, sometimes seven days a week, uh, all hours of the day, uh, working in horrific conditions. And so it's in, that, um, it's in that kind of context that you find William Wilforce um, coming into prominence. We talked about religious, evangelical religious societies last night, especially with the Evangelical Alliance. But um, while you have uh, evangelicals joining together for foreign missions, Evangelicals joining together for all kinds of things uh, locally as well. You, you have them also developing societies for the sake of the poor. And uh, the center of that kind of evangelical movement in Britain, anyway, was a little place called Clapham, just outside of London, about four miles outside of London at the time. And that's where um, Wilber, uh, William Wilberforce really will become prominent. Um, this village of Clapham, just outside of London, was um, remarkable for the fact that, that a number of evangelicals had chosen to live there, to live there together for the sake of trying to see together how they could collaborate uh, with each other to um, bring the gospel to bear in all areas of life. And so they, they met together, they practically lived together, and they spent lots of time together in Bible study, conversation, prayer, but also planning their efforts to affect for good the desperate conditions of British society. The unquestioned leader of this group would eventually become William Wilberforce. Uh, these men and women, there are women involved in this group as well, uh, were already living in this community, but Wilberforce, when he becomes involved, really becomes the leader. And um, let's uh, just kind of think about Wilberforce, but um, to introduce this Clapham sect, it's called the Clapham sect. It wasn't a sect at all. It's a terrible name for it, but it's described that way. It was more of a family. Uh, it was a remarkable fraternity. One person described it. There's never been anything like it since in British public life. Um, it's a really, if you ever have time to read about it, or you'll get a chance to see a glimpse of it in the um, film we're going to look at this morning, a brief clip. But it's a wonderful example where Christians joined together and said, let's stir each other on to, to good works. And they really did that. Um, they really promoted that amongst themselves and, and in their, their country. Um, all right. Well, Wilberforce, at the age of 21, entered Parliament. Uh, he, is, he is not, um, at that time, a uh, Christian. Um, he goes, in about at the age of 25, though, he goes on this uh, tour of France. And it's there that he really begins to think seriously about what Christ might mean to him. And this is how it happened. He invited, this was a, just a kind of a, a tour for him to take some time and, and uh, visit France. And he invites an old schoolmaster of his um, along to go with him, who's now a, a don or a teacher at uh, Cambridge. And Wilberforce is just mocking the evangelicals all through this trip until he finally realizes that the school teacher he's invited has become an evangelical. Well, that brings all kinds of conversation. And what happens then is that Wilberforce ends up um, ending this trip, going back to London, 
uh, recognizing that he needs Christ. And it is through that that eventually he will um, turn to John Newton, another name that you, you may know, wrote Amazing Grace, among many other things. Great, uh, he was a slave trader, converted, becomes uh, one of the great preachers of this era. Um, and John Newton leads him to Christ and, uh, and then really encourages him in, uh, in uh, his life. Now, Wilberforce then is in Parliament. He is now an evangelical in Parliament. Uh, he's an incredibly gifted man. Uh, William Pitt, who was the Prime Minister, said that uh, he was the greatest, um, or he had the greatest natural eloquence of all the men I ever knew. Now here is where you're going to see the difference between uh, Wilberforce and Shaftesbury. Shaftesbury was not a great speaker. Wilberforce was one of the greatest of his day. He was just very naturally eloquent and could, could really um, speak almost off the cuff on a number of things. Very talented. At one point, um, Pitt even thinks about delaying uh, Parliament for about 10 days until Wilberforce can get back because he doesn't want to go forward without Wilberforce's voice on his side. All right, so very, very capable. Um, He's a man who really is well-suited for this kind of leadership. Uh, He's got uh, ample wealth, uh, excellent education, unusual talents, etc. He seems to be really providentially prepared for the task and, and for this time. Now, under... Uh, Wilberforce's leadership then, this Clapham group becomes really closely knit together and now begins to think very seriously about how they can impact uh, their society. Um, They will have uh, meetings that they will call their cabinet councils. Now this is an informal group. It would be like uh, it would be like um, half of us deciding to meet together on a regular basis there's no formal connection necessarily, but just deciding to meet together for the sake of this community, say, to, to really stir up each other toward figuring out how can we make a difference in this community. Uh, so they discussed the wrongs, the injustices in their country, and they would delegate uh, to each man or, or woman the, the work that they felt they were best able to do. Um, let me give you just an idea of some of the things that, that they uh, originated from this little circle of, of friends. Uh, the Church Missionary Society, 1799, British and Foreign Bible Society, Society for Bettering the Condition of the Poor, Society for the Reformation of Prison Discipline, and that's just a very, very few. I mean, this was just a very small list of some of the things that they initiated from, uh, from this group. Now, the, the biggest thing, of course, that, that they will do uh, will be to abolish slavery uh, in, in this country. And here... Um, Wilberforce might have missed his life's calling uh, if it had not been uh, for the encouragement of the Clapham group, this Clapham family around him, and for John Newton. Because here's what he's wrestling with. He's, he's become a Christian, and he will be the leader of really the abolitionist movement in Great Britain. Um, but he's, he's not sure. He, he has this strong um, sense that, gosh, if I'm really to be a follower of Christ, now that, that uh, I am con- converted, I am committed to him, can I really stay in my parliamentary office, or do I have to go off and become a minister? I mean, that's the kind of thing that he's wrestling with. And uh, here you're going to see um, a wonderful sense of community saying, no, you know, God has obviously gifted you to be doing exactly what you're doing, so stay here. Let's, um, let me just show you about a 15, 20-minute clip of Amazing Grace. Anybody seen... The movie is on Wilberforce's life. It's a wonderful movie. It's not 100% actual, uh, factual, but it's really close. Uh, and it gives you a real good sense of what, um, of what this era was about and what this um, mission of abolishing slavery was about. But here is... Um, let's see. Here's where you're going to see him wrestling with his sense of calling. I know that lying down in the wet grass is not a normal thing to do. None of my business, sir. <laughs> Truth is, uh, I've been even more strange than usual lately, haven't I? It's God. 
10,000 engagements of state today, but I would prefer to spend the day up here getting a wet arse, studying dandelions and marking a bloody spider's web. If I've got so. I think he found me. Any idea how inconvenient that is? How idiotic it will sound. I have a political career glittering ahead of me, and in my heart I want spiders wet. It is a sad fate for a man to die too well known to everybody else and still unknown to himself. Francis Payton, I don't just dust your books, sir. When I was 15, I almost ran away with the circus. The circus would have been an acrobat. I would hope. 
Michael Shaw, third friends. This is another Equiano. Equiano? You travel far, eh? No distance could be prevented. And this was Hannah Moore. Travel the way from travel. Finally, let me introduce Mr. Thomas Clark. Beautiful house. Sweet little rabbit. It's a hair, actually. Please. Concerns for your own political ends. 
Yes, exactly that. Surely the principles of Christianity lead to action as well as meditation. Oh, excellent point. Allow me to meditate on it before I decide on any action. Just think about this, Wilbur. The slave trade has 300 MPs in its market. It won't be just you against them. But you could do it. I'm not strong enough to hear my own confession. 
I thought time has changed. It has. I'm older. Peter's asked me to take them off. The slaves. I'm the last person you should come to for advice. I can't even say the name of any of my ships without being back and bore them in my head. All I know is 20,000 slaves live with me in this little church. There's still blood on my hands. Will you help me, John? I can't help you. Do it, Wilma. Do it. Take them on. Roll their dirty, filthy ships out of the water. The planters, sugar barons, all of them sugar cane, the Lord Mayor of London, Liverpool, Boston, Bristol, New York, all their streets running with blood, dysentery, feud. You won't come away from those streets clean, Wilma. You'll get filthy with it, you'll dream it, see it in broad daylight, but do it. God's sake. Sir, I have Mr. Thomas Clarkson. Forgive me, Mr. Wilberforce was here a moment ago. I'm going to go find him. Maybe just historically that are just slight inaccuracies. The uh, Clapham sect, um, really John Newton introduces Wilberforce uh, to the Clapham sect. And uh, John Newton is the one who really brings uh, Wilberforce to uh, conversion. But it is true, as you get a hint of with John Newton, that he, he lived with the burden of the fact that he was a slave trader all of his life. And, and it really um, humbled him in, in many, many ways. But... Uh, the other thing that, uh, just to kind of lighten things up for a minute, um, Wilberforce was not a handsome man. He was uh, very short and had one person, as one person described him, a, uh, uh, too big of a crooked nose. In fact, uh, that's more of what Wilberforce really looked like. He was not this beautiful Hollywood uh, star that we just saw. Um, all right. Um, just, let me just ask for any comments after that clip. Uh, how, how do you feel, um, truly, after you see that? Well, one thing, it's that it was such a struggle for him to come to that point. Uh, yeah. He yeah. thought the way to serve God is to be a preacher. Yes. And we, yeah. looking back, think serve God by doing social justice in Parliament. Yes. So, but the, yeah. yeah. Wasn't it wonderful how, they, how Pitt in the film put it to him? Are you going to use that beautiful voice of yours to praise God or... Uh, to change the world. And then when, I think it was Hannah Moore who said to him, we think you can do both. Yeah. And uh, it was a great, great point in the movie. They've done such a good job of depicting this um, false dichotomy that we can make between what is the so-called secular world and the sacred. Those things that are secular activities and spiritual are, are um, kind of our Christian duties over here. And uh, God doesn't really make those distinctions. You know, all of all of uh, our life is to be dedicated to God. So even the smallest thing we do should be done for the glory of 
of God. Martin Luther wrote a whole treatise one time on changing a diaper to the glory of God. Um, and that's true. I mean, if we really are thinking about uh, life in God's terms, we recognize that everything uh, is important to Him. Um, we talked just a bit about this, uh, this dichotomy last night as we looked at fundamentalism, but uh, I, when I came to Christ in college, I um, was given a book called Disciples Are Made, Not Born by a guy named Walt Hendrickson. Uh, and it was a wonderful book in many ways. But it had uh, part of his story in there. And part of his story was this, that when he, he came to Christ in college, he had been a civil um, engineer planning to build bridges. And he, and he right at this point in his life, when he came to Christ, he said, I didn't want to give my life to something that didn't matter, that something that was God going to come along and destroy. And so he changed his major and went into Christian ministry. Well, I think God called him into Christian ministry uh, for all kinds of ways. But his thinking wasn't right. Um, and I took away from that, just something that you said, I think, last night. Um, I took away from that. If I don't have, if I go into business, which I, I felt like that's what I was supposed to do, if I go into business, then I have to have a, a ministry of some kind in my business for it to be valuable to God, which is a terrible way to look at it. Um, it, was a, it was making this kind of awful false dichotomy between the secular and the sacred. And that's what Wilberforce was wrestling with, and that's where the Clapham sect really helped him to say, stay in the place that God has called you to and use the gifts he's given you uh, right there. That's one of the, I think, most important lessons of, of his life, and we'll talk more about that in, in a minute. Um, all right. Well, to back up for a minute, um, Wilberforce, when he first entered Parliament, did not really know exactly what his calling was going to be. We kind of jumped ahead a bit with the, with the film to show you that. But when he first got there, um, he was a lot like most of us when we were young. Um, and uh, he said this, the first years I was in Parliament, I did nothing, uh, nothing that is to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. I mean, you know, how many of us start right there? You know, we want to make a name for ourselves. That's where most of us begin. But that changed forever as he came to believe that, that God was calling him to champion the liberty of the oppressed as a parliamentarian. My walk, he concluded, is a public one. My business is in the world, and I must mix in the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. All right, now let's talk about the slave trade uh, because this is where, um, you know, this is what Wilberforce is known for, and uh, though he did many, many other things. But just a brief background to the slave trade. Six, uh, 1562, English entered the trade uh, when Sir John Hawkins took a cargo of slaves from Sierra Leone and sold them in St. Uh, Domingo. Uh, then in 1660, King Charles II gave a charter to a company that took 3,000 slaves a year to the West Indies. From that time, the slave trade uh, grew to enormous proportions. In 1770, out of a total of 100,000 slaves a year from West Africa, British slaves transported more uh, British ships transported more than half. Uh, so enormous. Uh, well, let me, let me not go forward yet. Let me just kind of slow down a minute. Um, Wilberforce, um, as you, you saw in this clip, begins to really study the slave trade. He wants to, uh, he wants to understand just how bad it is. And he comes to um, understand that pretty quickly. It was obvious once he began really digging into it how horrible the, the trade was, the, the middle passage, this, um, the crossing of the Atlantic. Um, so once he studied that, once he saw the horrors of the slave trade, he decided uh, to take it up. And he's going to speak to the House of Commons later on and say this, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable, uh, irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected uh, its abolition. All right, so this will be one of the great um, uh, areas of focus for him in his life. It's a key moment uh, in British history, and quite frankly, it's a key moment in world history when, when he comes to this conclusion, because God is going to use him to end the trade that will then affect uh, the rest of the world as well. All right, for a few months... Um, Later, a few months later, on Sunday, October 28, uh, 1787, he wrote these words in his journal that have become famous. This is really setting out his own mission statement. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, uh, in modern terms, habits, attitudes, morals. 
And I'm going to talk a little bit about the slave trade now and then a little bit more about uh, the Reformation of Manners because that second part of his mission really is to change the um, moral climate of Great Britain. And uh, amazingly, he, he does so. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about um, this abolition of the slave trade because it was not an easy object. Um, at first, Wilberforce just naively assumed, because God had gifted him, he was a great orator, a great public speaker, God just, he just assumed that once he got up and made a few speeches, people would rally to his cause, the, even though most everyone would have been against him at this point, that they would rally to his cause, join him, and that uh, the slave trade would end very, very quickly. Well, uh, that was not the case. Um, in fact, early on, uh, John Wesley uh, really kind of tempers Wilberforce's enthusiasm with a note that he sends him. And, and these may very well have been um, John Wesley's last words. Uh, this is what he wrote to, to Wilberforce. Uh, Dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you to be as Athanasius uh, against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, uh, who can be against you? Um, okay, well, Wilberforce is determined. He um, is not quite as naive as he once was. And this fight uh, was very costly uh, to him personally. And, uh, and it was very, very long. Twice, uh, Wilberforce was waylaid and physically beaten up. Um, he became the most hated man in England during part of this uh, effort to abolish the slave trade. Um, he faced tremendous opposition from planters, merchants, ship owners, royal family, powerful ports of Bristol, Liverpool. Uh, everybody's against him because the British people at this time just assumed that this was the slave trade was necessary for the financial well-being of their country. Um, that was a big part of what uh, they were wrestling with. And so they saw Wilberforce as essentially taking away their, their welfare. Um, at one point, after Wilberforce has uh, been receiving all kinds of criticism, all kinds of opposition, sometimes even being waylaid, a friend of his writes him uh, this note. I shall expect to read of you being uh, scored and broiled like a piece of fish by West Indian planters, barbecued by African merchants, and eaten by Guinea captains, but do not be daunted, for I will write your epitaph. That's what a good friend should do for, for a brother in the midst of, of great turmoil. Well, um, Wilberforce, uh, in 1798, will make his first speech in the House of Commons on the traffic uh, of slaves. And uh, he does realize very quickly that um, his eloquence is not going to be enough. And so what he's going to do is... is really rely on the Clapham sect to gather um, reliable information about the slave trade that they will then use to uh, help people see uh, the problems that they're facing or the, the, the darkness of, of the slave trade. Two years later, after a lot of preparation, exhaustive preparation, Wilberforce will deliver another speech to the Commons uh, seeking to introduce a bill to prevent further importing of slaves into the West Indies. Uh, this is what he said, never, never will we desist till we have wiped away this scandal from the Christian name, released ourselves from this uh, load of guilt, and extinguished every trace of this bloody traffic. Um, what you see here, which is so important, and you're going to see the same kind of thing in Shaftesbury's life, is that it's a long-term battle. And, and most things that we accomplish in this life don't happen very quickly. They take years of dedication. And, and that's what's going to be the case with, with Wilberforce. It doesn't happen quickly. There's a lot of opposition. But stage by stage, the Clapham sects really um, kind of figured out how to do this. And they learned um, two basics of politics in a democracy. First, how to create public opinion. They became excellent marketers, as it were, not in a bad sense of that term, but they became really good at creating public opinion. And secondly, they became uh, really good at bringing that public opinion to bear on the government. Uh, there's one... Um, Clip, uh, one section in this film where uh, the Clapham sect will roll out this petition that they've gotten uh, signed from uh, British citizens against the slave trade. And it has like 10,000 names on it. And they roll it 
all the way across the floor of, of the house. And so it's this wonderful, they've learned how to market, as it were, learned how to present um, the ideas uh, to the public and then uh, stir up their um, opposition to the slave trade and then bring that to bear on, on Parliament itself. They would, uh, um, they published quality abolitionist literature, they lectured on public platforms, campaigned on billboards, they used all the modern means that they had uh, regarding publicity. And they had um, not only uh, the Anglican church involved, but non-conforming churches became involved. In addition to that, uh, women for the very first time uh, in history really participated in a political contest. Um, finally, uh, the victory did uh, crown their labors on February 23rd, 1807, after 20 years of tireless campaigning by Wilberforce, the House of Commons debated the bill, and it was obvious that this time it was going to pass. And one man gets up and kind of compares, as it were, uh, in his imagination, um, Napoleon and his successes going to bed at night versus Wilberforce and his successes going to bed at night. And he said something to the effect of Napoleon and his pomp and power uh, going to sleep, but his sleep being tormented by the blood he had spilled. Wilberforce returning after the boat, lying down in pure happiness, knowing that he had preserved so many millions of his fellow creatures. And let me just kind of read uh, what happened. Uh, and, and the scene is done very, very well in, in the film. But before Romilly, uh, who was giving this talk, could finish, the house uh, rose as one man and turned uh, toward Wilberforce with parliamentary cheers, here, 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 here. And then very uncustomarily, very unparliamentary, you start to hear them uh, say hurrah, which is very unusual for them. And, and, um, and the whole house then erupts uh, in hurrahs. But Wilberforce, um, this is recorded for us, and they do it accurately in the film. His, he can hardly take it in because his head is just bowed with tears streaming down his face. And it's, it's really um, one of the great moments in the history of the church where God's people have taken hard stands and given uh, much of their lives to see um, good events, good outcomes. And uh, it took um, 26 more years for slaves to be freed in the British Isles and in the British colonies. Um, so it was overall, it took, um, quite frankly, it took his entire parliamentary life. He died uh, very shortly after. In fact, four days after the slaves were freed, Wilberforce died. So he gave, really, much of his life, if not most of his life, to this. Now, um, I think for this reason, above all others, the Clapham sect remains the, the shining example of how a society can really impact uh, the world, um, can make a huge difference, can turn a culture around. Now, one of the things that I want to move on to talk about now as we look at a little bit more of Wilberforce uh, this morning is that he didn't just seek to abolish the um, slave trade. He didn't just uh, seek to alleviate all kinds of uh, ills in society, which he did, which I'm not talking about today. But the other thing he did was try to bring about a kind of uh, what he called a reformation of, of uh, manners. Um, now, uh, when Wilberforce came to power, uh, vibrant faith was really, to a large degree, was just out of fashion, especially among the elite uh, in Britain. Wesley and Whitfield had largely touched the poor. Uh, Whitfield, had done, Whitfield had done some with the more elite in society, but not, what, not much. And this is a very, very hierarchical society. And so um, Wilberforce knows that if he's going to impact the society, he's got to impact the leaders. And uh, so he, he um, hits on a couple of things that he does that really will have great impact. One of which is um, uh, something that um, he will kind of reinvigorate, and that is something called the Proclamation uh, Society. Now, here's kind of the background to this, uh, Wilberforce knows that there are many of the elite, many of the leaders in the country, uh, many of the royalty in the country are, um, are because it was fashionable to be, to be kind of loose in your morals and, and uh, not really devoted to God uh, at this point in time, he knows that many of them are, are just kind of um, being false about the way they're living. In other words, many, many of the people that he knew personally were more um, interested in spiritual things than they would let people know. So here's what he does. 
Um, every time that a new king was crowned or a new monarch was crowned, they uh, would have this proclamation uh, called uh, the, for the encouragement of piety and virtue and for the preventing of vice, profaneness, and immorality. In other words, at the beginning of a reign, there would be this proclamation uh, saying that we should be uh, living a certain way in, in this country. And most of the times it was just kind of a formal thing that didn't, that was really pretty useless. There was one time, though, in its past when, uh, during the, the reign of William and Mary, when a society had been formed to promote uh, the, these aims and had considerable uh, effect for a number of years. It was called a Society for the Reformation of Manners. Well, Wilberforce decides to revive this society. And uh, he kind of, he does it in a kind of a, a wonderfully sneaky way, um, essentially not wanting Britain to know that he's behind it. And uh, so he somehow works it out so that uh, King George III um, reissues this proclamation in June of 1787 and then has him persuade many bishops, dukes, and other notables to join the newly founded Proclamation Society and to do their best to fulfill its aims. So what he's doing here then is to um, really beginning to give the trendsetters of society a strong social conscience and an eagerness to help the poor. And this movement catches on. So he's working against the slave trade. At the same time, he's also trying to work with the, the elite of society, recognizing he has to change them if he's going to change the society itself. Um, that's one thing he does. The other thing he does is he writes a book called A Practical View. The, the full title is much, much longer. It's something like A Practical View of True Faith as Contrasted with His Contemporary Imitation. Uh, this became a bestseller. Uh, in this book, he stirred the consciences of thousands of people who for the first time really saw what true evangelical faith was as opposed to the kind of nominal good manners that was very typically a part of uh, British society. All right. Um, let me just sum up this section. And then what I want to do is maybe give you some life principles uh, or principles from Wilberforce's life. But uh, there's little doubt that Wilberforce changed the moral outlook of Great Britain. And this at a time when the British Empire was growing and Britain was the world's leading society. The Reformation of Manners grew into Victorian virtues and Wilberforce touched the world when he made goodness fashionable. Whatever its faults, 19th century British public life became famous for its emphasis on character, morals, and justice in the British business world, famous for integrity. Most of those who had ruled India and the colonies had a strong sense of mission to do good for those they ruled, a far cry from the original colonizers. All right. Um, half a century after Wilberforce saw a marvelous flowering of Christian faith, a myriad of applications, and countless constructive enterprises. In the process, the Bible became the best-loved book of the newly literate. Christian attitudes molded the British character. Christian social conscience uh, attacked the abuses left by the more pagan age that coincided with the early Industrial Revolution, and Christian compassion relieved its victims. Uh, William Wilberforce is proof that a man can change his times, though he cannot do it alone. Now, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's someone I think we should continue to study. Let me um, walk through some uh, possible applications as we look at this life for us, even today. Um, first, I'm going to give you uh, six or seven of these. First, Wilberforce's whole life was animated by a deeply held personal faith in Jesus Christ. There was... Uh, um, there was a lot of nominalism in this point of time. And there was a lot of uh, faith that was just kind of external faith. And, and when things get tough, external faith does no good for anyone. It took being deeply convicted that, that Christ had died for him and called him to live uh, sacrificially for the sake of others. And that is something you see throughout Wilberforce's uh, life as a Christian. Second... Um, Wilberforce had a deep sense of calling that grew into the conviction that he was to exercise his spiritual purpose in the realm of his secular responsibility. Now, we've talked about that a bit already, but, um, uh, you know, until about 20 years ago, I would say almost no one was preaching on work. That has changed a little bit uh, since then. Um, typically, what we preach on and I was certainly guilty of this for a long time, was preaching on those things that we, we consider the so-called spiritual activities. Well, most of us spend much of our lives working, and that is a spiritual activity that God has called us to. And uh, what you see then 
with Wilberforce is that he really does, uh, in his life, he breaks down those barriers and recognizes that his calling is right where he was. That was his spiritual purpose. Um, and, and we need to be encouraging people. Uh, you know, when for so long it was kind of not said, but this is the way, in the kind of the Christian circles I was in several decades ago, a couple decades ago, the idea, though it would never be said like this, this is what you really understood. If you want to be a really good Christian, you've got to be in vocational ministry. You've got to be a pastor or something. But if you really, really want to be a great Christian, you've got to be a missionary. And, and, and you know, that's really, um, that's how people looked at it. They wouldn't put it that way, but boy, did we believe it. And, and that has a long history in the church, centuries, quite frankly, of, uh, of problems of these kind of two-tiered Christians, the so-called super saints and then the rest of us. Um, well, there's no such thing. The Bible never speaks of that. And, and uh, Wilberforce's life is a great example of figuring that out. Third, uh, Wilberforce was committed to the strategic importance of a band of like-minded friends devoted to working together uh, in chosen ventures. Um, you know, the Old Testament says this, one can chase a thousand, two can put to flight ten thousand. Uh, this, this small group, this Clapham sect, as they were called, uh, was a center, if not the center, really, in Great Britain for evangelical crusades uh, against all kinds of misery in British life. And it's a wonderful picture of what um, we can do, maybe on a much smaller scale, depending on our own spheres of influence. But when we do join together with other Christians, um, with the intentional purpose of kind of stirring each other up towards good works, then God, there's no telling what God might do through, through us. Fourth, Wilberforce believed deeply in the power of ideas and moral beliefs to change culture through a campaign of sustained public persuasion. So um, he was something of an intellectual, though I don't think he would uh, be known for that as much, but he recognized the importance uh, of ideas. And uh, they also were very, very capable, as I've talked about already, at kind of organizing and lobbying and campaigning and marketing. Um, at one point, to give you an example of this, he has uh, uh, Wedgwood, the famous um, maker of all kinds of ceramics, uh, come up with a, what he called a track. It was just a small um, medallion that they made lots and lots of, a picture of a slave, and it says, Am I not a man and, and a brother? And this was used to kind of spread their message. Or, or oftentimes, it was the kind of thing that Wilberforce would use uh, just to begin a conversation. He, he would almost always go into a meeting of any kind with a, with a kind of conversation starter, with a way to kind of begin the conversation towards some important end that he had in mind. All right, fifth, uh, Wilberforce was willing to pay a steep cost for his courageous public stands and was remarkably persistent in pursuing his life task. Uh, we've, we've looked at that um, already, but uh, it was very, very costly. And... You know, um, it depends on your own nature and your own upbringing, but some of us are more thin-skinned than others. In fact, the next person we're going to look at is a very thin-skinned uh, man, Shaftesbury, who was very hypersensitive to criticism. Um, and yet, both men kind of kept going. And it was very costly to both of them. Six, Wilberforce's labors and faith were grounded in genuine humanity rather than a blind fanaticism. Uh, he was a very real person. He was very fun. One uh, uh, child who had grown up in the Clapham group um, who had known uh, Wilberforce said this. Well, she's a child and Wilberforce is, is an adult now as a part of this Clapham group. Uh, she said this about him. Uh, he was as restless and as volatile as a child himself. And during the grave discussions that went on between him and my father and others, he was most thankful to refresh himself by throwing a ball or a bunch of flowers at me or opening the glass door and going off with me for a race on the lawn to warm his feet. He was just, he was not a dour kind of Christian. He was a very fun, real human being who enjoyed life. Um, you saw in the, in the bit of the film that we saw that he had animals all around him. That was the truth. He loved animals. They lived in his house. He was, he was just an interesting personality. Very real in many ways. Um, seventh, Wilberforce forced, uh, forged strategic partnerships for the common good, irrespective of differences over methods, ideology, or religious beliefs. Um, compromise on principle to him was unthinkable, but the compromise on tactics was never a problem for him. Uh, very much against uh, the kind of narrow partisanship that he saw around him. 
instead seeking to um, find common ground where um, they were then willing to share credit for success with uh, various allies. All right. Um, Uh, Wilberforce did change his times. Um, he didn't do it alone. He did it with a close group of people who encouraged him, who provoked him to think about what his life calling might be. And they encouraged each other. And uh, um, what I want to do just for a few minutes is ask you, um, do you have folks like this in your life who are, uh, whom you gather with to really think about what it is that God might be calling you to do. Um, one of the things that has really impacted me uh, was a book, I forget the name of uh, the author. It was a book that was written, oh, in the last 10 years, I would guess, by um, the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Do you know his name? I, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, but the basis, so much of, of this book was about this one thing. As, as, as followers of Christ, we are placed in a community for the sake of that community. And uh, so when you think about this church, why is this church here? Well, it's not here just for us. It is here for the sake of this community. And so how are we as um, God's people in this community then seeking to encourage each other to, to good works and to make a difference? And I'm just wondering, any of you have uh, people that, that um, you at least dream about these kinds of things at all? Yes. Well, I think we're just kind of in the beginning stage of doing that. Um, I've been at this church for about 15 months, and since this past May at the National Day of Prayer, we gathered, I think about six of us got together. Okay. And we've never grown much bigger than that, but right now, two of that group of women are here in this meeting right okay. now. Okay, all right. And we meet every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. And okay. we're praying for the community. Wonderful. Not just only for our own congregation. Wonderful. And uh, it's interesting to me because, see, I'm one of those great Christians because I was a missionary. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the real Christians. And then I got demoted. <laughs> um, but there was a time in my life that I never really wanted to be in my hometown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, this local church I'm pastoring... Uh, was a church that would be the last place I ever thought I would go to. And I mean, just so many things. But I have a sense, a very real sense of call, that God has placed me there for this time. And I don't know how long that time is, but I'm not looking to leave or anything. But I am praying that God will bring together a group of us and through us will accomplish His purposes mm-hmm. in God's work mm-hmm. and the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I've come to realize, I never thought I was eloquent. I thought I was a fair preacher, but man, I just uh, come to realize unless God is mm-hmm. doing the work, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's Amen. Healthy. Amen. You say six people or so are gathering and representing different denominations? Well, are all this... right at the moment, it's just the folks within our congregation. Okay, okay. Though we keep telling others, we keep Good. inviting yeah. it. So right. I'm trying to think now, maybe we need to move out of the sanctuary to the coffee shop or someplace like this. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, that's great. I'm so glad you're doing that. I, I think uh, oftentimes, um, especially as pastors or leaders in, in a local church that we get so busy with the things that have to be done for the people who are here that the intentionality and the, and the cost of looking outward just gets kind of put by the side sometimes. So I'm, I'm thrilled that you're looking at what can we do for the community. Anybody else, even with a friend, that you just kind of at times maybe thought, what can we do? Um, you know, my son... Uh, is uh, our, my middle child is he's our evangelist in the family and um, he uh, we were we have this father son group that's been meeting for ten years. I'm used to meet every week on Sunday afternoons and we play football for an hour or so and then we talk about life and the Bible for about an hour together. Six fathers, six sons, been doing that for ten years and now all these our sons are in college so we only gather several times a year but we gathered at the beach this past uh, summer. And as the boys are sharing different things, my son 
just gets up there and he just lays it on us. He said, when was the last time that you guys shared the gospel with somebody you don't know? He's, talking, he's looking at the fathers now. He's not looking at the boys. And we're sitting there thinking, hmm, this is going to be interesting. And, and my son has really joined together with a number of other guys in his fraternity who are really committed to um, sharing the gospel. And, and so they have been to, um, they were in Nashville recently at a, um, it's a big formal dance of, of some kind for the fraternity. And, and uh, after they took their dates home, Wesley decided to, to lead them out into uh, downtown for them to, to share the gospel. So for three hours, about three or four o'clock in the morning, they're out sharing the gospel with all kinds of interesting people in the middle of the night. And, uh, um, and recently he called me and said, Dad, I think this summer, his good friend's roommate, a really fine Christian who he kind of dreams, dreams with, said, Dad, I think this summer he and I are going to take off for a good bit of the summer, just travel the country, sharing the gospel. This is his year before he's going to Mexico. Now, that makes a father proud. It also makes him scared to death. But the, the thing I'm trying to say is, you know, even at his age, he's, he's dreaming. Um, and one of the things we tried to do with these boys, even from an early age, was to say, look, God has given you benefits that he hadn't given a lot of people. He's, he's, he's given you, each of you, a Christian home. And, uh, and you guys need to be leaders when you go off to college. And, and they have really wonderfully stepped up and, and been doing that. But they recognize they can't do it by themselves. Uh, anybody else, um, just anything, even the smallest, even like a husband wife just dreaming, who might we be for Christ? I mean, it seems like I had a lot more of that when I was in seminary uh-huh. in, in college. Okay. And then the daily grind of kids and sure. uh, you know ministry just kind of the dreaming stops and it's yep. just the doing. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That happens very naturally, I'm afraid. Anybody else? All right. Well, this is where we're going to go. We're going to take a break and... Uh, then we're going to look at Shaftesbury, and, and what I want to do at the end of looking at Shaftesbury is ask you to dream a little bit. Um, you know, what might happen in this community because of you and because of the people that you associate with? Um, and hopefully that'll be kind of fun. Oftentimes we don't get time to dream. We don't, as you said, we just get busy doing, and uh, everything will distract us from dreaming. I think God wants us to dream and encourage each other, stir each other to good, up to good works. Let's take a break, and then, what, pick up in about, what, 15, 20 minutes? Yeah, 10, 15. 10, 15. Be good. 10. All right, sounds good. 10, okay. <laughs>